I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum! Astral Radio Z is a horror cult. Exploitation film podcast by filmmakers, critics, musicians, journalists, and fans for the film obsessed. Welcome to the first in a series of episodes about John Waters films. You have tuned in to number one. We're going to be going through every single movie that John Waters has done with my group of sicko, demented, deranged, debaucherous film fans. Who do I have with me tonight? Well, I have Mr. Gonzarific himself, Andrew Shearer. How are you doing tonight, sir? Wonderful! I'm 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 beyond thrilled to be part of this, man. I'm so so glad it's finally happening. Very cool. Thank you. Hey, man. We've been talking about doing this for an awful long time. So I know next to myself, you're one of the biggest John Waters fans that I know. Um, so I'm super excited I got you on this one. So let's let's do this, man. Thank you. Well, you know, I cannot imagine what my life would be like right now had I never watched a John Waters movie, and that's the honest truth. It's uh, one of those things that I think a lot of people, when they think John Waters, they think, oh, he's the guy who did Hairspray. And then they don't think about the movies where, um, let's just say, there's talking assholes in them. Among other things. (laughs) Among other things. So we're going to go through all of those, and we'll eventually, down the line, get to Hairspray and some of those other ones. But tonight, in probably the next four or five episodes, you're going to be hearing about all of the movies that garnered him the subtitle and the name, The Pope of Trash. Alongside Andrew is one of the biggest shrimpers that I know, Mr. Seth Powlin. Well, actually, that's (laughs) not true. He's not a shrimper at all, but uh, he likes to eat shrimp a lot. I don't know. I actually don't know that whatsoever. Seth, do you like to eat shrimp? Yeah, I do. I like to eat shrimp, and I like to eat shrimp when it's on toes. Nice. <laughs> nice way to do that. We'll keep it classy tonight. Seth is actually from Baltimore. You want to tell us a little bit about Baltimore? Have you lived there most of your life? Yeah, uh, what you hear is true. And that is? It's sleazy and dirty, but it's also kind of wonderful if you get to know it. I've heard this from multiple people. I had a friend reach out once they learned that we were going to do this series of episodes on John Waters. He reached out and said, hey, man, he's an artist, uh, a professional artist. And he came to me, said, hey, man, I went to school in Baltimore and we had John Waters come in and uh, uh, teach a class and did a special like celebrity guest appearance at one of their uh, classes in college. And he's like, yeah, man, he came in and told me my sh- my stuff sucked. <laughs> and he said, he said he was kind of a dick. 
but uh, I didn't know if uh, maybe I took it a little too hard. But uh, he said he lives in New York City now, and he said, "Yeah, I I lived in Baltimore for twenty years, and uh, I kind of fell in love with it, and I kind of miss it because it's a little, uh, it's a small city that's uh, what did he call it? A patchwork city. Where, that's a good way to uh, describe it. Yeah, where he said that there were uh, you never knew." from pocket to pocket, neighborhood to neighborhood, what was going to be a good part of Baltimore and what was going to be a bad part of Baltimore. Is that pretty That's correct? Absolutely the case. It can be uh, completely tourist-friendly, and then one block over, it is the middle of a gang war. Wow. What What's the reason for this? Is it just how it, it was built? Or, I mean, why is it so segregated like it's this? It's a very small, big city. Everything's on top of each other. And there's kind of no um, getting away from people or things you don't like. You kind of see them anytime you're down there. Interesting. So yeah. do, you, do you think that this was kind of the perfect environment for someone like John Waters to actually, like, uh, come up in? Oh, absolutely. He could see uh, every side of life within, you know, 10 miles. Very the weird, the ugly, the affluent, the rich, you know, all of it. Very, very interesting. So last but not least – we have Angelique Bone has come on. Now she's a Southerner, full time. Yeah. Correct? Yes. Correct. <laughs> How is the South treating you? It's okay. Um, I'm in a arty little place, and, and, you know, I like introducing people to John Waters uh, when they think that they're amazing and, you know, have seen everything cool under the sun. I'm like, oh, no, no. Come with me, child. <laughs> take, take my hand down into the deep gutter. Yes. <laughs> so what what is your experience with John Waters? When did you – what was your first John Waters film you saw, and how old were you when you saw it? Um, let's see. I was 18, and I saw Pink Flamingos. It was playing on some movie channel, and it was unedited. Interesting. And – Blew my mind. <laughs> I thought the only way you could see Pink Flamingos was on a radio VHS. I never saw any of his early movies on cable whatsoever. It, I was in college. I don't know what was happening, but I stumbled on it, and it's like, oh, okay, what's this? Holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> see, my first experience with John Waters was Crybaby. They used to play Crybaby constantly on the movie channel. Oh, that's and, a good uh, one. Yeah, and I just became obsessed with it. I watched it as much as I could, and I loved it. And then as I started going to the video stores, I would go to the cult section, and that's where all of his movies resided. And the next movie I actually saw was Multiple Maniacs. Oh, wow. <laughs> that was a complete <laughs> diametric uh, shift from Crybaby, which is pretty much a you know a straight laced mainstream flick, to what's basically a step up from the movie we're going to talk about tonight, Mondo Trasho. It actually has a story and it actually has uh, like dialogue and sound, but it also has lobster rape and. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I remember just being so floored and flabbergasted that I, I had to watch everything else that I could get my hands on, which, of course, led to Desperate Living and, and uh, Pink Flamingos and all the rest of it. So um, I'm very happy to finally do this and bring you guys on and, and talk about these films that really I think a lot of people think John Waters and they, they think 
his latter era stuff. So to sit and and take people through uh, the early stuff, I'm very excited uh, to sit and dedicate some actual time because as I was going through the internet in the, the last week or so since we did the Giallo episode to prepare for this show, I noticed there is next to nothing of anybody even talking about Mondo Trasho. And this is... For all intensive purposes, John Waters' first feature-length film. Now, he had done four shorts before this, and only one is available for you to actually see uh, the Diane Linklater story, because the other three he did, Hag in a Black Leather Jacket, Roman Candles, and Eat Your Makeup, were kind of like screen tests and student films. I, I that, He doesn't call them student films because he wasn't in college. He dropped out of college to decide and pursue uh, being an experimental art filmmaker. And these were these three short films were kind of his school of learning how to hone his craft and how to be a filmmaker. And he showed them in basements of churches and community centers <laughs> and things. And then once he finally made Mondo Trasho, he put them away for nobody to ever see again. And he, he's been so stingy about showing them that I've only heard of a few other screenings at uh, like book signings and stuff of those first three films. Andrew, when you hear about these early films, these short films, do you get so frustrated that you don't get to actually watch them? Yeah, I mean, I have dreams that Criterion does a Mondo Trash Show Multiple Maniacs release and tax these onto it, like does new brand new transfers. You know, and I know the music is the problem, with, you know, as far as the you know releasing them and stuff like that. But they're kind of like holy grail for cult film fans um, getting to actually watch them because all we have really to go on are the um, photographs and shock value of the book and all right. the descriptions from there. And so they're just, you know, in our minds, um, just built up to be these really important uh, kind of things. Yeah, and they sound just as outrageous as everything else that he's done. Like the first one, Hag, is about an interracial marriage where somebody gets married by a Ku Klux Klan member. Yeah, a white and a black person yeah. get married. Uh, and I either on the top of... His parents' house, or out in the yard, or something like that. <laughs> yeah, the the I think the Klansman's on the roof. Yeah, and it's all in the like one take because he didn't know how to edit, so they shot it all in one take. And uh, I believe that's like uh, an eighteen-minute movie or something like that. Then Roman Candles sounds confounding and very interesting. From what I've heard, it's three separate films shown all at the same time in different quadrants of the screen. And when it originally screened as a 40-minute movie, it took three projectors all shooting at the same space. <laughs> and it had uh, three different soundtracks uh, playing at once, along with one blaring music soundtrack. So I, I've heard that it's a it's as experimental as it gets. I mean, he was super into Andy Warhol at the time, and that's where he drew a lot of his early inspiration from was, uh, you know, that New York art scene. This movie, the more I read about it, the more I kind of want to see it. 
because I always like films that it, where people just try to do something completely out of left field. I bet you it's a. I've heard nothing but horrible things about like the experience of watching it because it's so confounding and there's no logic to any of it. But I would like because I I'd like to try things once. I'd love to see it at some point. And then eat your makeup. It's a serial killer that makes the models eat their makeup. One with uh, Malcolm Soul in the nun costume? Yeah, I think so. Malcolm Soul was, uh, before Divine came on and became John Waters' muse for many, many years, uh, Malcolm Soul was going to be his Divine character, uh, his, his focal point, like his big star. And then unfortunately, like I think a few weeks after, I could be wrong, a few weeks after Eat Your Makeup was made, didn't she, she died? Yeah, like at 26. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's, let's talk about uh, the Dreamlanders a little bit. Andrew, do you want to talk a little bit about what are the Dreamlanders? Who are the Dreamlanders? Uh, the Dreamlanders, man, are John Waters' buddies. And he got hooked into the pipeline of the weirdos in Baltimore by making friends with this girl at his school that had, like, zits all over her face that she had this green medicine for. And, you know, John Waters is just really attracted to people like that. Um, I think the quote in Shock Valley, and I'll never forget, is one of the most greatest things ever and I can really identify with he's like I, I'm sick of being a bad influence on people I wanted to meet people that would be a bad influence on me and so through this person he met Divine and all of these others that would later become the Dreamland players and basically Dreamland Studios was the front yard of his parents house so they all just started doing drugs together and going places together and watching movies together and making movies together and to me, they're just that's just one of the coolest groups ever. So in Mondo Trasho, in addition to Divine and Mary Vivian Pierce, Mary Vivian Pierce, by the way, we should mention, is in every single John Waters movie. Right. She was, she was the original. And so um, uh, you do have Mink Stoll, which, you know, she's got the, the great uh, topless dance, but she's multiple characters in the movie. Um, David Lockery is a crazy doctor. David Lockery, who would go on, of course, to uh, to be uh, to be most famous, just like Mink Stoll in Pink Flamingos, with his great blue hair and blue eyes. And then um, Danny Mills, who played Crackers in Pink Flamingos, he's the guy that sucks the feet. So you get to see all these people really doing their things for the first time. It's the debut of a lot of the iconic Dreamland players who would go on to you know underground fame in uh, in movies like Pink Flamingos. But here they are first. You know, it's pretty cool. Seth. Is there any, like, local legends about the Dreamlanders? Uh, not too much, uh, really, that I know of. I know Divine is really beloved around here, and uh, they're talking about building a shrine statue to her in the coming years that the mayor got behind but isn't going to put public funding towards. But other than that, there's really not too much aside from uh, visiting various locations around the county and city. So they're going to basically like uh, Milwaukee made a, a statue of the Fonz. Detroit made a statue of RoboCop. Baltimore will have a statue of Divine. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the, there's like early plans on what they want it to look like up online. It's not going to be like a like a bronze statue from what I can tell. It's going to be more artistic, like you'd expect a shrine to Divine to be. But it is going to have... Uh, complete with the dog poop. <laughs> oh, that's great! Yeah, here in Augusta we have a uh, we have we have the bronze uh, James Brown in Augusta. Are you serious? Yep. yep. But people just poop on it. Gumbo, 
Hondo Trash Show, which is the first, like I said before, first feature-length film, is a rather interesting experience. Seth, how would you describe Mondo Trash Show? Oh, boy. Um, a collection of scenes involving a hit-and-run victim being driven around by Divine around Baltimore. The craziest scenes and compilations of just hallucinations and bizarre encounters and it's hard to explain all set to the golden oldies the thing about this uh, movie that strikes you right off the bat other than the fact that it it looks like it was shot on an eight millimeter camera by somebody with that that had uh the shakes (laughs) (laughs) it is no sync sound other than a few overdubbed uh sections in it it is all strictly music played at maximum volume so loud. super loud to the point that it's almost grating that it's i turned down my tv when i watched it this last time and i had it at like two and it was still super loud <laughs> i could still hear everything that was going on now that could have been the, the bootleg copy that I have that I got from Cinema Wasteland on DVD years ago because there's no official release of this film and more likely never will be because the soundtrack, which is this total montage of all these old records that John Waters had in his house, and he just uh, he told the story through this music. It's one of the most interesting things I've ever seen. Andrew, what do you think of the way that he used this soundtrack to help tell this story? I mean, it's really cool. You know, for, for a movie that uh, is is not uh, sync sound, which means, you know, there's no real dialogue set or anything like that. It's so different from the way other people um, were making underground movies that also weren't, weren't doing the same thing. Because if you think about someone like Doris Wishman, for example, um, and a movie like Bad Girls Go to Hell, whenever someone is speaking, they just have their you know face away from the camera and they can just overdub whatever the dialogue is. But John Waters does not even mess with that. He is making what I found to be – when I discovered uh, Mondo Trasho, um, I was in a, a punk band and I thought it was the, a punk movie. I, I'd never seen a punk movie before in my life and to me it was just a – really anti-everything way of doing it. And um, to hear it described as, you know, the music propels the story forward or is using the music to tell the story, there's several points where he uses parts of songs that say certain things that the characters would be saying, if that makes any sense. It's hard to describe without someone actually seeing it, but it's not just like one long-ass music video with you know random songs playing. It really does, um, he really does cut the songs up to fit, you know, because some songs only play for a moment, you know? Right. And it, it almost is like, it not only would, would the lyrics be something that the character would say, it also describes the state of mind that the characters are in and the situation <laughs> that they're in. I, I, I've always found it to be a fascinating way to tell a story and very experimental. The, the music itself, if you're familiar with any of his films, is kind of like that 50s kind of rockabilly slash uh, beatnik kind of the quote-unquote punk of that era. And it's super fun to listen to. There's there's lots of Little Richard in there. There's Link Ray in there. 
uh, it goes everywhere from, like I said, uh, like rockabilly, surf, uh, beatnik type stuff to gospel, to classical music, to, to Elvis. soul. Elvis is in there. Motown, <laughs> Frankie Lyman, <laughs> and the teenagers. There's a website called Dead to Rights, dead, uh, d2rights.blogspot.com, that has actually attempted to compile every single uh, an itemized list of every single song that plays throughout this movie and let me tell you it's a humongous list this list is insane that goes on there's link ray there's the royal teens there's the duncan sisters elvis presley frank sinatra perry como little richard the list goes the the shangri-las i mean it goes on and on and on and on and on um, which obviously tells you why this fil- this film is will never be released ever again. But uh, this is what makes this film, I think, super interesting is the, how he uses this soundtrack in order to tell this story. And uh, as Seth said, the story really doesn't make a whole hell of a lot of sense. Angelique, what did you get out of the, the quote-unquote story of this film? Well, it was like... Uh, Cinderella meets the Virgin of Guadalupe with the the grand ascension of divine. But the film starts off on something that I think most people would find grotesquely offensive. I hear this all the time that people hate seeing animal cruelty in a film, but the first feature-length John Waters film ever made starts off with a guy dressed up as an executioner lopping off the heads of chickens and we see in prolonged shots these chickens flounder around in muddy water uh seth what did you think of how this opened Uh, it certainly opened with a a bang if you will i don't know if i ever found a reason for that to be in the movie other than to say i'm john waters and i'm here really don't know uh the point besides just making a visual statement it's called Mondo Trasho, and that's Mondo footage. It's kind of a, if someone were knows what the hell Mondo movies are, that's not really an unusual thing to see. Right. He. So it's kind of like, if none of the other movie was, none of the rest of the movie was Mondo, he kind of made the beginning Mondo, you know, for someone watching it to go like, okay, I get this. I mean, it does all the things you guys are saying, but I always just took it as the one Mondo scene, you know? Yeah, I, I've always heard that he, even though he was inspired by, the title was inspired by all those old Mondo movies, he still claims that the, that the movie itself has little to nothing to do with any of those, and he didn't try to go for that aesthetic, even though the film it kind doesn't. of plays out like one in, in a very <laughs> weird way. But the beginning's definitely Mondo footage. I mean, you know, that's like Faces of Death or whatever. I mean, it's... right. It's gross. It's fucked up. But you know, it also kicks the door open. <laughs> if you can't handle that, don't. You, it's not going to get any better for you. No, it absolutely <laughs> is not. It, it it immediately kicks the door open to uh, a shot of a trash can and Link Ray's Jack the Ripper plays. <laughs> it's perfect guttural. John Waters, early John Waters at its best. And then it, it goes to Mary and Vivian Pierce waiting for the bus to show up for what seems to be like 10 minutes. She has she has a cigarette. She sits and waits and waits and waits and waits. And the reason this, this scene goes on for so long is John Waters says, oh, well, it 
the bus never showed up. <laughs> we just kept waiting <laughs> and waiting and waiting, and it never showed up. So that's why the seat's so long. So she gets on a bus and has a book, and then finally goes to the park and decides to sit at a park bench and feed a bunch of uh, ants and flies some raw meat that she had in her bag. Um, raw meat, which would end up becoming kind of um, an ongoing joke in all of his films, all the way up to A Dirty Shame, which has some of the best raw meat sections in it, I'm, I must add. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, she's sitting there tossing out this raw meat to these, uh, these insects, and this slimy guy who's uh, kind of crawling around in the woods comes down and uh, starts looking at her intently. Angelique, what do you think any of this means? Why does it have to mean anything? Is that kind of the what you get out of John Waters in general? Yeah, I mean, he's not, especially right now, he's not trying to make any kind of grand statement. He's just like, boom, this is fun, let's do this. That, at least that's my opinion. And it took me a minute to figure out what she was feeding him. I thought she was breaking off pieces of cake. I'm like, what is that? And then, oh, all right, well, we'll go with this. There was chickens and now there's meat. Okay, let's, okay. Well, one, the quality of this is so poor that it, that's, that attributes to some of the confusion because you can't quite tell exactly what it is. That she's tossing out. But uh, yeah, she's tossing out raw meat. And then this gentleman, this very wholesome gentleman shows up. And we we learn what a shrimper is. Which in the opening credits, there's a guy labeled as introducing so-and-so as the shrimper. He doesn't work on a boat, that's for sure. (laughs) No, he certainly doesn't. Andrew, what's a shrimper? They like to lick on feet, man. Badow, suck toes, all of that. He, he starts admiring her feet. She stands up like she's offended and she's going to go away. And then's like, oh, no. um, Yeah, sure. Just <laughs> go for it. Yeah, let's do this. Let's, <laughs> let's go ahead and do this. And they decide to go into the woods. And then there's like a 15-minute epic <laughs> toe-sucking sequence in which Mary <laughs> Vivian Pierce <laughs> lays down on his coat in the woods. And he proceeds to, to lick her feet while she dreams of being Cinderella <laughs> with wicked stepsisters and everything. I love it, man. It's it's uh it's his reaction to art film, you know, and reaction to the the love uh, generation and all of that stuff. John Waters is constantly um, being counter to counterculture and all this stuff. So not only is he freaking out like polite society, and we'll see this more in the story of multiple maniacs, um, you know, uh, much more blatantly. But here it's just like an out and out kind of. He's learning how to make movies and he's expressing himself. They're also really high on drugs, all of them, when they're making this stuff. Keep that in mind when you ask what things mean. And he's, you know, all, but mostly what I take it as is just like a, it's like a kind of a big middle finger. He's like, here's what we want to show. We want to show what's the underside of the things that people really do and act like they don't, you know? Right. That was something I took away from the vast majority of this was that on on the surface, these people acted one way, but in their hearts, they actually wished that they were doing something else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, Mary and Vivian Pierce embodied this in this sequence where at first you kind of think maybe this dream that she's having about being Cinderella <laughs> is real. 
But, but I took it more as, you know what, in her, her real life, she, she had to be some one thing, but her, in her heart, she really just wanted to be a pervert who got her toes sucked. <laughs> in, in I mean, don't we all? Don't we all? <laughs> so from, from here, she, uh, the, the shrimper, once he finally you know, gets what he needs, which is just a good 15-minute toe suck, he, he moves on, and she's distraught. Because she she like orgasmed fifty times and was in love, and he walks off and she's all distraught and runs through the woods. Meanwhile, Divine shows up. And pulls up to a, a side street by the park and becomes enamored by a hitchhiker who all of a sudden his clothes mysteriously vanish. Now this scene is is infamous. <laughs> in John Waters' lore because they actually got in trouble with the police for filming this scene. Uh, Seth, what do you know about uh, this scene at all? I know that it was on, uh, I think, John Hopkins University property, and uh, I think everybody got arrested or not John Waters got arrested, depending on the story. Yeah. Uh, the story goes two two ways. One, they all got arrested. And the other one, they split off and ran. Right. And John Waters with the camera ran off so nobody could get the film. So at least that didn't get confiscated. But then some of the other people diverted the attention of the authorities uh, so he could get away. And then they went and uh, got those people out of uh, jail or confinement or whatever happened uh, down the road. So Divine... Who, who's absolutely enamored with this naked man on the side of the road, decides to pick him up, this hitchhiker, and inadvertently runs into Marion Vivian Pierce as she runs out of the woods and uh, hits her, and she rolls over and looks as if she's dead, just blood all over her face and everything. And uh, the, the hitchhiker vanishes. And from here, the movie takes a complete left turn, and we, we get... Uh, a psycho style change of the guard per se and the star becomes somebody else now divine when she first shows up in this film angelique what did you think of how divine like compared to what you got used to with divine how she looked in in the presentation of divine flawless absolutely flawless she's rocking that gold lame two-piece she's got that blonde bouffant wig she looks great and this is – her actions are, are the core of divine. I mean I'm going to drive around this big fancy car. I'm going to ogle men. I'm going to pick them up if they'll let me. And uh, sometimes even when they won't, I'm going to shoplift and strut. There's a, a whole lot of charisma and attitude in divine even this early on. Andrew, what do you think of divine? Beautiful, sexy, interesting to look at. I would watch divine do anything. I mean, it, for me, seeing this movie and seeing Divine like that, dressed in those clothes with that hair and that makeup, I mean, that is just, I thought it was hot as shit. I honestly just was like, it knocked me right out. You know, when, when people make low-budget movies, even to this day, to me, it's not about what camera you got. It's what you point that shit at. And you could have anything on divine and that's just going to hold people's attention divine made the greatest entrant one of the greatest interests as, as at any actor could ever want to make in the history of movies and just like 
you know, lit it up from there on. I stole my heart away. This is one of the most understated of her makeups in most of the other movies because then she would become more flamboyant as it went along in John Waters' uh, over. Uh, but this one, she she kind of just looks like a pinup almost. Yeah. If, if mm-hmm. you could say there's a divine pinup. I like the outfit doesn't quite fit either. That's sexy too. It's all falling off. Yeah. It's all falling off. <laughs> go on, big girl. Go on. You know. <laughs> That's right. Walk it. Yeah, we so, better put the brakes on this part of it for me anyways. So from here, Divine's character picks up Marion Vivian Pierce and decides that uh, she's going to help this person out and uh, try and find uh, some help for this person. But first, she's got to get s- some new clothes for for her because she can't be all bloody looking like this in this in this outfit so she decides to go steal and is rifling through a bunch of shirts and decides to you know pocket a bunch of shirts and then leaves and gets her dressed and then decides to go try and find a doctor for her so then it becomes a very episodic film after that point where they go from one misadventure to the next misadventure to the next misadventure as we said before none of it makes much sense none of it needs to make much sense um the lots of blaring music and eventually we get to see uh mink stole topless doing the jig and then mary and vivian pierce gets her legs cut off <laughs> and chicken feet <laughs> get attached to them and then she becomes dorothy from the wizard of oz and and clicks them together and jumps from point a to point b mysteriously and, and that's basically Mondo trash so when it came to how the film played out seth do you do you feel this was an easy film to sit through or was this one of uh his films that kind of tried your patience a little bit i think it's uh, incredibly easy to sit through just because it's so incredibly interesting uh there's so much going on and so much to take in that it might not be easy to digest but i think the attention is completely given to the movie this is definitely not for the a b c crowd of film viewers this is much more for those that like underground experimental art house cinema because it plays by no rules and it doesn't care that if you don't like it or not, it wants to show you something that you haven't seen before. Now, Andrew, compared to some of his other films, where do you think this one uh, lies? Do you feel like this feels like somebody who's still just trying to feel out where they're at with their experience and that this is like the starting block of, of something great? Yeah, man. I mean, there's so much about it that informed all his later movies, and you did great in, in sort of hitting on a lot of those points. But if you look at it in terms of like music, a new band is often, their early recordings are often their best in a lot of people's minds because the more practice you get, the better you get at your craft, the more money is going into it, the more talent is going into it, the more time you've got, the bigger budget, all of that stuff. And the longer you do it, you're going to get better at it. And is much as I love all of his movies and as much as I love even up to the end all of them there's no duplicating the amateur work and the magic that is happening in a movie like Mondo Trasho because Seth I agree perfectly with what he said about the film I can put this movie on and it's over before I know it it's definitely not tedious to me it's definitely not annoying to me it's definitely not boring I mean it is it's next thing I know it's over. You just kind of know ABCD and it goes all the way through it. So I'm just really inspired by those early movies. There's nothing like a man because a guy starting out like that, what director can you think of 
that like we are we know and are obsessed with their early experimental work. You know what I mean? What director that ever went on to anything commercial can we really say that about? It's just from the very beginning he was doing fascinating things. The thing about this is the energy, the absolute energy and carelessness about trying to be a normal film. This these early works of his and especially this one, all of the characters are larger than life. None of them resemble real people in any way. They embody what most people would label as camp. As the the films subsequently would go along, uh, these characters would be fleshed out a little bit more and Divine would become a little more uh, fleshed out because she was able to talk in some of the other ones. But the all of these characters are so large in life and so in your face that you can't take the shocks that happen so seriously. It's all kind of comedic and it's all really fun. And it all has this kind of juvenile punk rock sensibility to it that, uh, like Andrew said, the movie does kind of fly by. If this isn't your cup of tea, though, if you're not used to this kind of film, I could see and I, I hear this a lot when I look when I was looking up reviews and I was reading about it, is that people have a tough time watching this one and they 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 claim that it's not very good and that it, it that it's abrasive and that it's really boring but it's just so weird and so out there that I agree with you guys this this movie's fascinating to me well that it, ending is poetry you know she clicks she's it's got this big long violent slog through the mud pit i mean they're in the dregs they're with pigs they're you know they're dragging themselves through the mud and finally she clicks her heels and she's just in the regular normal street right and it sucks so bad that she clicks her heels and it doesn't show where she goes but i always felt like she just goes back to the pig slough <laughs> what do you guys think? Where do you think she went? I could see. I could totally see her going back. Wouldn't that be because, perfect? Yeah. Yeah, I thought it was the ending was was a perfect end to this movie because, like you said, she clicks herself into after she gets these chicken feet attached to her when Divine takes her to the doctor. Finally, <laughs> she clicks her these chicken feet and transports her from this scene where they're rolling around in slop attempting to run away from uh, like gangsters or something. And uh, she, she lines up on the, in the middle of a, a sidewalk where these two caddy women are judging her. Oh, 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 oh. It's not a boy or a girl. This is a faggot. It's a dyke. No, it's a hippie. A communist. Perhaps it's a drag queen or a watch rag queen. Probably a speed freak. Or a pothead. Or a muffin queen. Look at her, it's just a whore. Or maybe a gold digger. Or she's a hustler. Yeah, or some sort of intellectual. <laughs> Probably a rimmer. <laughs> maybe a speed freak. A chicken queen. Or a shrimp freak. But but it could be a narc. Yeah, or maybe a beatnik. Or a junkie. Yes, or an acid hit. Or a spade. Or just a gigolo. Just a flower child. Yeah, shit kicker. Or a red. Yeah, or a glamour girl. Or maybe she's just some sort of snob. Yeah, maybe just some Pollock. Or a warmonger. Yeah, or an S&M queen. Oh, it's just a teenager. Yeah, maybe it's one of those hell angels. You think it's a baby butch? Yeah, it could be a bag hag. Or maybe it's a bee girl. Yeah, a closet queen. 
uh, hair hopper. Yeah, maybe a movie star. Well, she's a dropout of some sort. Yeah, what is that word? A, a dingleberry. <laughs> or a dress dodger. Yeah, or maybe just a runaway. Or some sort of those, you know, peacenik. Yeah, or a hooker. Or she's one of those yippies. Mm, maybe it's one of those jet setters. But I bet it's just a whore. Yeah, or maybe a dinge queen. Rimmer. Yeah, a size queen. And a hostage. Oh, she makes me sick. Whore. Oh, what is that? Oh, oh, oh my God. God. Oh. Isn't that disgusting? Let's wait for the bus somewhere else. Oh, this whole thing has just made me sick. Me too. She's so, like, diswrought and beside herself, and she hates what's going on that she just clicks herself away and vanishes. And I think that that last scene kind of defines everything about this film. The judgment of normal society, of uh, just how most people would look at the things that are within this movie and judge them, while this movie celebrates those things that those people are labeling the people. Seth, what did you think about this this final scene? I think you nailed it in saying that it celebrates everything against the normal society. It, it, honestly, that scene goes on for so long, it becomes quite comedic that they just toss out every kind of slur or you know degrading remark they could, and they come up with some some real winners in there, and then they just decide to go catch the bus. Like, they're over it. I think it's kind of like John Waters saying he's over, you know, everyday normal life and people judging him and his uh, his gang of dreamlanders. Yeah, that's kind of the, the point of most of his early cinema. And when he, you would hear him on interviews, he would always talk about how he wants to give a voice to those that are never given a voice or don't even want to speak for themselves. He wants a voice for the outsiders because he always felt like an outsider, even though he was raised in, in a very kind of leave it to beaver setting. And he, and he went off and decided to find this kinship with uh, these completely oddball, crazy people and make these strange, crazy films. Andrew, I think you nailed it on the head about, <laughs> about that last part of the movie. There, There's no getting around the fact that there is kind of a fantasy film element to this. He's always said that he loves the Wizard of Oz. And I think, you know, there's Disney and Wizard of, of Oz, oddly enough, throughout all of this movie. Do you think that, Andrew? Oh, yeah, man. And it's what's great about that is all of that ended up manifesting itself in John Waters' work in, like, the darkest, most twisted way possible. Because even though he went on, like, the Howdy Doody show and he watched all that super squeaky clean 50s stuff, because of, of his mind and his creativity and his attitude and outlook, the uniqueness that is John Waters, all of it gets mixed up and churned right back out. So when people say... You know, oh, you know, we got to make sure kids watch all this clean stuff. We got to make sure their worldview is the most happy and positive. Look what it did, man. It's, you know, it's just a, it's just the curtain, you know, and you, you pull it back and there's still there's still the way people really are. You know, Angelique, when it got done and you finished this movie, what did you end up thinking about about the film as a whole? It was like a fever dream, really. And it's like you want to remember everything and then you just end up watching it again. So I'm like, wait, wait a minute. Is that really what I saw? Yes, it is. Okay. But wait, (laughs) it's just mind blowing. Really. I mean, to think that this was the earliest P 
piece aside from the shorts, even though it's it is kind of you know slapdash. You know the way it's shot, the way the way it runs, the the amount of care that went into it. Because I mean the the music alone, as we were talking about earlier, you know that I can't imagine how long it took to piece together all of the different bits of the music that told the story, that drove the story, and then you know putting them on all these whacked out visuals, you know, I love it. This is kind of a sensory overload to have a movie where actually the, the way the story is told, it, it's actually pretty slow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it takes us time to get from point A to point B to point C to point D to whatever, wherever it ends up going. It, it takes a long time, but because of the nature of the soundtrack, it feels frantic. And it feels in, insane. <laughs> it just, well, it's like it's like that nightmare where you're trying to run down the hallway and you're going as fast as you can, but you're not going anywhere. You're stuck, but there's things happening all around you. That's that's a perfect way to describe this. It it it's a, a mixture of gutter sleaze, a mixture of uh, like children's fantasy of Wizard of Oz and Disney. Then also because he was raised uh, uh, Catholic. There's a lot of Christianity that runs throughout this film as well as divine in multiple moments of this film has these visions of the mother Mary helping her out in times of need, which really deliver just about the only dialogue in this entire film. Divine asking the Virgin Mary to make her divine. Well done, Virgin Mary. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> you nailed it. Uh, they were interesting for the, the dialogue and the fact that they were the only scenes with dialogue. Uh, it was interesting to see Waters bring up his uh, Catholic upbringing and put it face-to-face with Divine. Kind of a uh, really big juxtaposition there. Well, this, this would be something that would run through the vast majority of his films is kind of this juxtaposition and, and kind of the hypocrisy of, uh, of Christianity or organized religion. Cause he's come out very staunchly and said how, how he despises organized religion and it shows in his, his films uh, for sure. Now let's go ahead. Why don't we wrap this up? Why don't we give our general thoughts and final thoughts on on this film and whether we ended up actually walking away. I think across the board, we can safely say we we dug this film. Uh, Andrew, what what did you end up thinking compared to some of his other stuff? Do you think this is a good intro uh, for people to jump into or do you think maybe they should watch something else and then come back to this flick? Well, this is the movie that really kind of got me into John Waters and got me to try to try to dig into all of his stuff and got me rapidly um, kind of pursuing him as a director because when I was a kid, I was a big married with children fan and I learned who divine was when divine died. And that was also the year that hairspray came out. So I saw hairspray because of, he was supposed to be on married with children, but he died. And so he didn't. So um, I, I checked out hairspray based on, you know, having known about him suddenly. And uh, I did see Crybaby. I, I saw Serial Mom um, at the theater. So that was my first John Waters movie in the theater. But it wasn't until I got my video store job uh, out of high school at Blockbuster that I did my thing where I started going through all the directors that I was interested in. We had Mondo Trasho, we had Multiple Maniacs, and we had Polyester, and we had 
female trouble. So those were the ones that I watched all in a row and I watched them in order and I was just knocked right out. I loved how anti-movie they were. I'd never seen an underground film. I'd seen a lot of weird horror, Evil Dead, you know, some like low budget things. I'd never seen anything. It would be years before I'd see anything by the Kuchar brothers or Jack Smith or Kenneth Anger or any anyone like that. So uh, for me, it was just like, it was a mind opening thing. And the first time I really thought about seriously about making movies, making my own movies with my friends. And when I read shock value, that was it. I knew I wanted to make movies based on that. And it was just like hearing punk rock for the first time. You go like, Oh, if all I'd ever heard was, you know, like the super polished, great studio stuff, I never would have picked up a guitar. But because I heard, you know, Dead Kennedy's Black Flag, the Ramones, I'm like, I could die, yeah. And it was just same thing with Mondo Trasho. My God, what an inspiring movie. There is kind of a charm to the film because not only the, the music has this high energy about it, the look and the feel of the film feels like something of someone that just got a camera and decided to go for it. So it, I could totally see where that inspiration could have could have hit you. That's this kind of total DIY aesthetic that most of the early John Waters films held. Seth, what do, what are your final thoughts, and uh, would you recommend this to anybody? I absolutely recommend it to John Waters fans, underground film fans. I don't think it's the perfect place to jump into Waters personally. I think uh, everything he was getting his feet wet with here. And uh, same with Divine, finding her swagger and attitude and everything that she'd perfect a couple years down the line. I think it's more accessible. Absolutely check out Mondo Trasho. It's fantastic, uh, really interesting film to look at and listen to and just experience. Angelique? I don't know if I'd jump somebody in on this one. Because like you, you know, like we said, you know, the way it flows and, and you know, this is like a silent movie and a lot of folks – really don't dig silent movies. I'd probably start with, with Multiple Maniacs, really, if I was going to jump somebody in hard. But, I mean, this would definitely be number two. Like, all right, you like that one? Well, let's go back. Let's start at the beginning here. Well, Multiple Maniacs definitely actually has a plot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> where, where this does does seem to meander and go all over the place. So, yeah, I can, I can totally see that. This was something that I came back to. Um, I, did, I definitely did not see this one first because this had a very limited VHS run back in the day. And uh, it's vanished completely, like we said before, mostly because of licensing reasons. I dig this film. I sat and watched this with Amanda, who was not familiar with a lot of John Waters' early stuff. I had shown her Pink Flamingos uh, before this, and she was rather perplexed by that, but enjoyed it enjoyed the energy and it didn't particularly enjoy some of the animal cruelty in it and didn't particularly enjoy uh, some of the, the kind of nasty sex that's in that movie, but she enjoyed the, the, the lightheartedness of everything, even though it was so offensive and so disgusting. She kind of got the point of it when we were watching Mondo Trasho and the film starts with a guy chopping off the heads of a bunch of chickens I could feel like the air got all sucked out of the room <laughs> almost immediately. And that's why I wanted to like focus on that right off the bat when we first started talking was because th that is kind of the effect 
that that opening scene has, and I think it's completely intentional, is that this movie is put in front of a, a bourgeois crowd, a, a regular kind of crowd. It's going to suck the complete life out of the room. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I think that's what John Waters thrives on. And Mondo Trasho is definitely a, a complete ex, um, exhibition of debauchery. It, it is so in your face. And it's so punk rock that uh, it's not for everybody. So if you were really like a newbie to John Waters, this wouldn't be the film to jump into. But if you have seen some of his other stuff, mostly some of his other early stuff, and we're talking multiple maniacs and pink flamingos and desperate living and polyester and female trouble. If you've seen some of these films and you haven't seen Mondo Trasho, you're ready. You're ready to go back, especially if you've seen multiple maniacs because they're both black and white and they both feel kind of rough around the edges. This much more so than multiple maniacs, but if you're into that, Mondo Trasho will be your thing. But if you're into regular types of films, Mondo Trasho will chew you up and spit you the fuck out. It is a, like a, a punch right in the nose. <laughs> There's no doubt about it. I absolutely dig this film, but I can totally see how it's not for everyone. Now, we're going to be doing this once a month where we're going to be hitting one film of John Waters uh, until we reach a dirty shame. I wish there was more movies. He can't seem to get any more made, but we can keep crossing our fingers that eventually somebody will give him some money to make fruitcake so I can finally see another John Waters film. But until then... Watch out. Go to AstroRadioZ.com. Contact me at uh, AstroRadioZPodcast at gmail.com or go to the Twitter page. Go to the Facebook page. We'll be updating it, and we'll let you know when our Multiple Maniacs episode is going to hit. But that'll be the next one in this series. Um, I'm really glad you guys came on to do this with me. Let's go ahead go down the line and let the, the listeners know where they can find each and every one of us on the interwebs. Mr. Andrew Shearer. Oh, hey, hey. Ha, ha, ha. Um, my name is Andrew Shearer, and I'm a, a filmmaker here in Athens, Georgia. And uh, we, Gonzerific has patterned itself after Dreamland in a very significant way. Um, I wouldn't say we copy what John Waters does, but the idea of just making movies with your friends and kind of thumbing your nose at the way you know, f- film is conventionally done and the, the pathways in which you're supposed to take to be successful at making movies, we definitely... Uh, we definitely admire that and try to do th- our own thing in our own time. So uh, www.gonzorific.com, you can buy DVDs of the movies, lots of crazy stuff, uh, very influenced by not only John Waters, but William Castle, Russ Meyer, Ed Wood, things like that. Um, Amazon On Demand, uh, I have a movie called Mondo Gonzo, which is our, you know, our, my way of have, doing a tribute to Mondo Trasho, but the movie is uh, not like that. You know, there's, I think... Uh, Satanism and panties and menstrual blood and uh, vomit and I don't know, there's just a lot of stuff in it. Uh, but it has a it has a heart of gold, uh, all all done in good fun. And uh, pajama nightmare and uh, the newest one, the underground cinema, cinema with an S. And on YouTube, something I didn't mention about Mondo Trasho, how lucky lucky we are to have seen such an early movie by a celebrated director because normally this would be the kind of thing they just keep in their closet or you know it's so out of print no one ever you know but we've seen it and uh i try to do that as well um with uh, my old stuff so on our youtube page uh, gonzorifix youtube page are some of our earliest crap is on there possessed socks possessed butts 
um, hero cookie with the laser that turns people gay. All of that's on there. So check it out. <laughs> that's awesome. I used to have uh, my original, uh, my first short that I ever did called Sci Fuck up on uh, YouTube and then it got yanked because like John Waters, I used some of the same music from John Waters early stuff and uh, the copyright police came and got me and made me take it down. So <laughs> now they would have just taken uh, the, the monetization of the, of the, the film and just made money off of my work and I would be able to keep it intact. But uh, you're correct. Mondo Trasho, the only way you're going to see it now, unless you go to eBay and get a copy of it on VHS, is bootlegs or YouTube. It's completely up on YouTube. Go check it out. I would definitely recommend it. It's the only way you're going to be able to see it now. So, uh, And go check out Andrew's stuff. It's all fucking great. It's Thanks. good stuff. Thanks, man. <laughs> Seth, where can the listeners find you? You can find me at... Uh celluloidterror.blogspot.com and on the Facebook page, Twitter page, and YouTube channel, Celluloid Terror, for everything horror, cult, and exploitation. Angelique. Oh, just check me out on Facebook. You can also find some fun reviews at thelosthighway.com by myself and some other really cool cats. And as I said before, I'm Derek Carey. You can find me at astroradioz.com. You can email me at astroradiozpodcast at gmail.com. You find me on Twitter, on Facebook. You can find the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, YouTube, anywhere where you find podcasts, Astro Radio Z is there. And until next time, folks, I'll see you later. Lollipop, lollipop, Pop.